This is the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to our podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest, and this is November 16th, 2018. And hi, I'm Peter Terzakian. So, Peter, what's up for the show today? Well, I think everybody knows in the business that the price of oil has been sliding. So we're going to be talking about the price of oil and particularly from a supply perspective. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the price weakness and OPEC's response. After that, we're going to talk more broadly about what is happening in oil producing countries around the world, what their trends are. Are they growing their supply? Are they contracting their supply? And finally, we're going to end with talking about the costs and what does it cost to bring a barrel of oil out of the ground and how that relates to price. So this is all about supply and important because supply is really the reason we're starting to see uh, some price weakness for global benchmarks. That's right. So you're going to talk a little bit about OPEC? Well, let's talk about the price slide because it is significant. And uh, in Canada here, we've been quite focused on these differentials. But the other thing that's been happening is we've been dropping price at the global level, which then filters through to our absolute price as well. And we had $84 a barrel oil price at the beginning of October. And we're at this moment, we're under $67 a barrel right now for Brent. So ouch. Yeah, that is an ouch. Let's unpack that a little bit. $84, that's the global benchmark in the North Sea. The Brent price, that's right. And from that $84, and there's a bit of a discount to the United States benchmark, which is called West Texas Intermediate. So what's that trading at? It's generally about $10 under. So we've seen the same pattern, but everything moved down about $10. So we've lost on both benchmarks in the range of $17 a barrel in the last five weeks or so. And our Canadian prices are tied to that US WTI benchmark. And of course, last week's show, we talked about the pain of the extremely wide discounts to that. That's right. We're removed, you know, unfortunately, right. $30 plus dollars a barrel, more right, on that. But, right. but you know, this global benchmark, everything starts there. And so it, as that moves down, it's stepping down the price in WTI in North America and even in Canada. And so people are starting to get a little concerned about what's going on with oil price. And so this OPEC meeting that was held this past weekend was really watched closely. You know, typically this isn't really a high profile meeting. This is a monitoring committee meeting, which typically doesn't even generate hardly any media coverage. But because there's been this slide in oil price, there was a lot of interest what, what OPEC would do. Yeah, what you'd think they'd start to meet about it when the price of oil slides by $20, effectively 25% almost in the span of only a few weeks. Interestingly, that came very, that meeting came very closely after the American election because, you know, there's this tension that is there between the Saudis and the Americans, right? That's right. Donald Trump uh, wants to keep prices low because he believes that voters and consumers uh, don't want to see high gasoline prices and that will be beneficial for him going into an election, especially because his policies around Iran are part of the reason why prices sort of ran up in the fall. And so definitely more than ever, the U.S. president is influencing the oil markets. Right, right. But on the other side of the world, there is a group of countries as represented by OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, which has been around since I think it's the 1960s. They want to see a higher price. Well, that was the question sort of at this meeting. Would they sort of signal that they wanted to see prices firm up. And of course, OPEC has evolved a bit since the 60s. Recently, in the last year and a half, we now have what we call OPEC plus. And so it's generally the plus part is Russia. And they're at the table as well discussing what is the future of supply and what is going on with prices. So let's talk about who's involved in that OPEC group of countries. Of course, there's Saudi Arabia, there's countries like Libya, Nigeria, and the core group 
of OPEC countries numbered about 10, right? That's right. You've got Saudi Arabia, UAE, Venezuela, so you've got some South American uh, Mm -hmm. influence Mm -hmm. as well, Ecuador. Uh, But really, who calls the shots here is Saudi Arabia when it comes to that group. Now, there's been some Iran because they've had to cut their production because of sanctions sanctions from the U.S., They've been on the outs a bit with Saudi Arabia, but generally most of the rest of the group right. does what Saudi Arabia signals. Right. So basically you had the 10 core countries and then the plus part of it was adding the Russians, which were never part of OPEC. But because really the OPEC group of countries and other producers outside of North America had to face the reality of growing American shale oil production, they decided to come together in a plus group and agree to cut production as a means of stabilizing, in fact, strengthening price. Yeah, it has been quite effective. Basically, when the group, including Russia, decided to cut their production, we went from having 300 million barrels of oil in those storage tanks around the world over what we typically do, draining that down to pretty much where the typical levels are and getting rid of the glut. Right. So in the course of about, I'm just say, 16, 17 months, we've seen the price of oil rise from low 50s to 80. And now we're starting to see some overproduction strains, a little bit of weakening in demand, and the price is falling back. And I think the other uh, catalyst here has been the OPEC Group Plus did make a decision to add more supply back to the market. The president of the United States encouraged them to do so when prices were running up. And really, the point was to offset the losses from Iran. So because of the sanctions, Iran has reduced their production. Their exports are down nearly a million barrels a day. And the worry was the market was getting tight. But what happened was the OPEC plus group added more supply than what was lost. And so we're in a position now where the supply is a bit over uh, where it needs to be considering where demand is. And that's what's caused the prices to soften. So they, they basically raised their production to offset the Iranian sanctions. Of course, there was fall off in Libya, Venezuela as well, right? Right. And they, uh, that offset, even when we consider, uh, Libya's actually recovered, but when we consider the losses from Venezuela, the group is still actually added to their collective production. Right. And the other thing that's going on is demand is softening a little bit as well. Right. And so all that together means we probably, the group added a bit too much supply and that's causing the prices to, uh, to weaken. It's interesting, this whole strategy of OPEC to be able to control the market price by withholding production or being called on to add production as a stabilizer, right? That's an age-old, I mean, age-old meaning going back about 50 years. Today, the dynamics are considerably different because of the rise of that American shale oil. That's right. That growth in production. And it's interesting to watch over the last three, four years as a consequence of the latest price slide we saw in 2015. The response on our side of the world in the United States, in Canada, was to innovate vigorously to be able to drive our costs down, to be able to survive, and even we were actually growing at, say, $55 plus. You know, it's a very standard response you would expect in a free market to innovate to lower your costs in the face of a price war. That's right. Your price has gone down. How are you going to survive? You're going to have to cut your costs, become more efficient. And we've seen over the last two years, the operating costs of these companies, the money they need to spend to drill new wells and get a return has changed drastically. So here in North America, US and Canada, you know, we are behaving as we would expect in a free market sense. But I always find it curious to think about this OPEC plus group because their strategy, their innovation to all this is to turn off a series of valves, 
right? I mean, it's not all that innovative. And so we're going to be talking about cost in the third segment of our program. But what we have here is a very distinct set of strategies occurring. Innovation here and not so much innovation, just sort of the age-old levers you pull to try and control the market. And there's a lot of tension between the two. There definitely is because the people that cut their production are really giving up market share to others potentially. Right. And so that is the the tension that you know makes you kind of think about, well, this OPEC plus, it's being talked about like it's a long-term relationship here. Right. But over time, if the Americans continue to grow their production in North America, Canada, I'd put in there as right. well, um, it will mean smaller market share for countries that are shutting the Sure, bonds. yeah. And then you start to get some infighting within this cartel OPEC plus where one country, say the Russians, are taking too much market share from the others, and then potentially the whole thing falls apart, and you have an all-out price war again. So do you see that happening? Well, that's why everyone was watching this meeting, which uh, isn't typically watched, is because they wanted some signal that the group was still interested in having a hand in the market and trying to influence prices. You know, could they be okay with the price change that we've seen or are they going to want to prop prices up? And so what came out of the meeting, I believe, is the group is still very much in that business. That's still their strategy, hasn't changed. Yeah. You know, basically the energy minister of Saudi Arabia says he believes that the producers collectively need to make an output cut of a million barrels a day to get this market back to balance and that he's going to be an early mover, a Saudi Arabia agreeing to take half of that cut already before there's agreement from others and move their production down about a half million barrels a day in December. That's pretty significant, half million barrels a day. So really, although the list of OPEC plus countries is like 15 or 20 countries around the world, the two significant ones, the, the the two that matter the most is Saudi Arabia and Russia. That's right. And now Russia was a little more cautious at the meeting. You know, they basically had some concerns that the Iranian situation isn't really well understood right now. Right. Uh, to give you some background, Trump was going to be very strict on the Iranians and allow no exports after November 4th. But come November 4th, some waivers were given to allow countries to take some exports from the country. And so if they continue to be lenient and not as strict as people thought, then the supply from Iran isn't going to contract as much as expected. So that's one concern. They want to see how that plays out. There's also, you know, a lot being read into the future of demand. Demand right now is actually pretty strong, Mm -hmm. but there's concerns about the headwinds next year. And they're like, let's just wait and see because demand may not weaken as much as people think. The reality is it's really difficult to fully embargo a country like Iran. The waivers are given because Iran supplies certain countries that have no other sources of supply. Right. right. And people forget not all crude oil is equal. There are right. certain types of crudes that are well suited for certain refineries and you can't just go somewhere else and get right. the same crude. Right. So it's part of the supply chain and it would do damage to a series of countries, those countries that you mentioned that got wavered. And then, of course, anybody who's under sanctions is, tends to get very innovative and clever and figures out ways of getting their oil to market. Right. So there's always leakage. Right. There's always leakage. And last time around, you know, this isn't the first time the U.S. has put sanctions on Iran. Exports did move down around a million barrels a day, and that was all that was achieved. So we're already kind of at that level. Right. Um, So it's very possible that this is where we stay. So actually, why don't we move to that, the world supply trends? That's the situation in terms of OPEC plus, that 15 to 20 group of countries that are basically one big cartel that tries to manage the market. That's right. And then I would say the collection of Canada, the United States, and the North Sea that are the free market actors who have been innovating aggressively to bring their costs down. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Let's do a scan. Let's talk about some of uh, the countries and what the last three or four years has done 
to their production? Because actually, I mean, this downturn has been very severe. I mean, let's start with Venezuela. I yeah, mean, uh, Venezuela yeah, was producing about 2 million barrels a day in early 2017, two and a half if you roll back in another year or two. And now they're at 1.2 million barrels a day. I mean, some people are predicting they get down to 0.8. A million barrels a day in 2019, but wow. really nobody knows. That's another 400 uh, down. Yeah. So Venezuela has been a big part of uh, why we had a bit of a tight supply situation and why OPEC group decided to increase their supply uh, this fall. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's Venezuela. Let's now, now we're not going to go through every single country, but on the flip side, let's talk about the ones that are increasing output, the dominant one being the United States. Right. So I think that the best way to look at this, because we want to look at the go forward, is we're going to look at the IEA. They put out an outlook each year that goes out to five years' time. And so they just put one out in 2018. So let's refer to that. And it's basically showing the growth of various different countries. The real bulk of the growth is coming from the United States, in their view between now and 2023, they are expecting almost 4 million barrels a day of supply growth from the United States alone. And, you know, it just dwarfs anybody else. You know, Brazil and Canada are the next in line at, you know, in the range of three to 500,000 barrels a day of growth. So, you know, we're relying um, for the next five years on the United States to deliver, uh, to keep the markets well supplied. Meanwhile, many of these OPEC producers like Saudi Arabia and Russia aren't even growing at all over the next five years, according to their outlook. Right. And they're actually trying to restrain their production to keep the price high. At this point. But, you know, this kind of, to me, raises some questions about the long-term feasibility of this OPEC Plus's strategy. Because you think about 2023 comes, and now the United States is producing 4 million barrels a day, even more than they are today. So today they're pretty comparable. Saudi Arabia, Russia, United States, there's a little bit of difference, but they're fairly comparable in terms of their production. Um, But roll the clock forward to 2023, and now the United States has grown by like, 50% and you're still in the same spot and their revenues have grown 50% and you're still in the same spot. Like the strategy at some point, you've got to question if they're going to continue to stick with it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying is that it it is a big battle for market share using old techniques. When you have technology and innovation as a driver on this side of the world, the technique of restraining output artificially can't work. And this is what we're seeing. You know, I think what they're betting on, though, is that the United States cannot actually deliver 4 million barrels a day of growth and they will be able to grow their supply. And that, you know, there's many people out there that are saying, you know, the production out of the United States, we can't grow at that level. There's not enough resource. The technology is going to start to plateau. We've drilled up all the sweet spots. That's right. Yeah. And the technology is not sufficient to be able to do more. Right. So I think the OPEC plus group, I'm just speculating. I don't really know what they think, but I think they're betting on the United States not delivering and being able to still grow their production. So why not keep prices higher in the meantime? And eventually you're going to be able to grow your supply. Yeah. Personally, I wouldn't make that bet. I mean, I I think that technology, we've talked about this before in previous shows, is only in the second or third inning in terms of being able to improve and be able to take uh, grow production more and take more market share. So I think that uh, the OPEC plus strategy is one that'll work in the near term. But as you go into the 2020s, who knows? Let's talk about Canada for a minute, because as I see the chart here, we've got the United States, as you mentioned, is the dominant source of growth. Then we've got, what, half a million to a million barrels a day, maybe, from Brazil. 
That's right. And then Canada, we've still got growth coming. How is that possible? Yeah, they're showing Canada growing in the range of 400,000 barrels a day. Surprising considering the situation we're in right now. So Um, this is the International Energy Agency, the agency out of Paris. That's right. Thinks that we are going to grow by another 400,000 barrels a day despite our pipeline constraints, et cetera. Over what time period? Between now and 2023. 2023. I mean, I, I, I think it's reasonable, believe it or not. Why? Because, well, this includes the growth that we're seeing this year, which includes the Fort Hills project, the big mining project. Surprisingly, we still have about 200,000 barrels a day of new supply coming on in the oil sands. And that's because, you know, we put those big projects up over the past decade, mm-hmm. and many of them still had some ability to have some capacity creep. So basically, if you tinker with them a bit, if you put a bit of capital into them, they can actually add some production fairly economically. Right. And so we're seeing the cumulative effect of that, uh, as well as we talked about um, in our last podcast, the, the Greenfield project from Imperial, this Aspen project. And so there's still some growth coming from Canada. I, that might be a little bit high at this point, um, but I do think in the range of two, 300,000 mm-hmm. barrels a day is possible. And that would put us at one of the largest engines of growth in the oil supply markets between now and 2023, you know, <laughs> uh, third place after right, United right. States and Brazil. Right. I mean, speaking of engines of growth, I mean, if you think about that three, 400,000 barrels a day in terms of unit trains, I think each unit train is 50, 60,000 60, barrels, barrels a day. day. So you're, you've got like five unit trains, six unit trains. Is, uh, yeah, we could. It's, it's, that's doable, is it? It is doable. If there are no pipelines from Western Canada I mean, by 2023, I guarantee you, you'll be seeing that move yeah. by crude by rail to yeah. the Gulf Coast where the yeah. refiners need yeah. it. Let's end the segment on the notion of declines because we've got demand pushing now solidly over 100 million barrels per day. That's right. We had a major milestone in October where the first time ever the world hit 100 million barrels a day of demand. Right. So let's just say 100 million barrels a day of demand matched up by 100 million barrels per day of supply. That supply, if all drilling and investment stopped, we would see a decline of about anywhere from 5 to 7%. Well, there's definitely uh, different opinions on this. So yeah. I think it would range between 4 to 7% if you look at the various agencies and groups that estimate these sorts of things. And that, that makes a big difference. So if you're declining 4% on a base of 100 million barrels a day, that means every year you need 4 million barrels a day of new projects Just, to offset that decline. Right. And if you're on the other side of that debate and you think it's 7%, that would be 7 million barrels a day of new projects. And so you need to continue to see constant investment to offset that decline and then add to meet any demand growth that you have. Right. So we need enough investment to find and bring to market, let's just use the conservative end, let's use 5%, 5% on 100 million, 5 million barrels per day each year has to be brought to market. Plus we're growing at million plus barrels. We talked about that a couple of episodes ago. So you need 6 million barrels per day to offset declines and facilitate growth. Right. And it is a big challenge, but we have been doing it. And according to this IEA outlook, if the United States can grow in the range of 4 million barrels a day and everything else occurs in the countries that they expect, which is Mm -hmm. likely not going to happen, but, you know, it does look like the market could stay well supplied. What's critical is the United States can really grow um, the way they're predicting. And so the incremental amounts that are going to have to go into this five, six million barrels per day of growth has to come from the United States. 
Well, to, the other countries are actually contributing to right. that too. So when you have a country like, for instance, they're showing Angola going down by 0.2 million barrels a day over the next five years, there's actually investment going on in that country. If not, they would have declined a lot more. Right. And so in all of these countries that are flat to slightly declining, there's still investment going in to offset those declines. So the belief is that in many countries, the investment will be enough to offset the declines. Right. And then the net new growth will come from the United States. Yeah. The interesting geopolitical over here as I look at this chart, which we'll post. We're going to post it. Yeah, we'll post the chart and we'll also have a link right. uh, to it right up. The interesting geopolitical overlay to this chart is that uh, there are, as I said, six to eight countries that are on the decline. Could be more if this price slide continues. And there is an increasing concentration of where the oil must come from with a distinct shift to North America, Canada, That's right. Canada and the United States. So, I mean, this is a geopolitical reality that has yet to be, I think, absorbed by the world because for decades, the dominant sources of growth and the dominant reliance has been in places like the Middle East, North Africa, Venezuela, et cetera. And the whole geopolitical order is shifting. And I think Donald Trump knows that in terms of this narrative about energy dominance and how the United States is taking the pole position in being a lead supplier and supplier of incremental growth in the world. And, you know, the way the Iran sanctions have occurred so yeah. over the last year, that wouldn't have happened, I don't yeah. think, if the United States yeah. didn't feel emboldened by the fact that they have a lot of their own production. Yeah. Uh, and so it's definitely changing uh, geopolitics and, and policy. And the geopolitics even has his tweets where he's basically saying to the Saudis, hey, don't restrain your production. We want the, the, the price to stay low. I mean, it's just kind of this tension uh, that's out there, but a completely different kind of tension than we've seen historically. So very yes. interesting. We're going to move on and talk about the cost curves and then wrap up. Sounds good. Okay. So it is getting cheaper to bring oil to market. I mean, back in 2014, when the price was $100 plus, people were in the industry were aghast to see it go to 90 or 80. Today, we can do it at 50, 55 plus, right? Right. I mean, one of the most stunning things about the downturn has been the shift of the cost curve. So this, what when we talk about these prices, it's like, what price do you need to believe in longer term to justify an investment in a new project that you would get a payback on right. your investment? Right. And basically what's happened is because of the downturn, people have innovated, they've relooked at these projects. And, you know, title is an example. Prior to the downturn, the belief was that you needed $70 a barrel plus to do onshore title in the United States and Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, now it's sub $50. Um, some people talking about numbers like $40 and even lower in right. terms of developing these projects. But it wasn't just in North America where we saw the innovation happen. On the offshore, we've seen estimates of projects that used to need $80, $90 a barrel to justify an investment being sanctioned and people saying, oh, this project actually makes sense even at $40 a barrel or $50 wow. a barrel. And so this change in the cost curve is really consequential because what it means is we could have prices that are lower and still see projects being sanctioned and still add supply out to 2023 and beyond with these types of prices. Right. So I mean, the, just by the way, that offshore is like dominantly in places like the North Sea. Oh, and a lot of the U.S. Gulf Coast, uh, we've seen some projects move forward, even off the east coast of Canada. We oh, yeah. had a sanctioning in the last year. And all of these projects are saying that, you know, the prices have come down a lot and that they can make these things work at the $50 or lower right. oil price. Right. So notionally, if we have $50 as a marginal cost in, uh, you know, not to get too technical in economic theory, but marginal cost is theoretically supposed to equal to the price 
that the long run price that we would expect would be somewhere around 50 bucks. I mean, that's the theory of how it works. As yeah, you can see from the no, day to day, it changes no, quite a bit. Day to day change. Um, but the theory is in the long term, if that's the price you need to add supply, you shouldn't really need a price much higher than that. And it should revert back to that sort of mean right. over time. Although there'll right. be periods of like we have today where maybe the market has a bit too much supply and prices are weakening or prices are or the flip side when we have a bit of a shortage. But that's the long term mean that it should sort of rotate around. Right. And those costs are all theoretical in terms of the what we call the below ground costs of what it technically takes to get the stuff out of the ground and to market. It doesn't factor in the above ground costs, the social costs in many of these countries like Saudi Arabia and others to keep the social order, right? In other words, a social dividend that the revenues from these state-owned oil companies deliver to the people. Yeah, and you right? often see these charts, what's the fiscal break even for a country? Yeah. And many times in the Middle East, it's closer to $70, $80 plus in terms of what they need to balance right. their budgets. Even here in Alberta, I will add, we need a higher oil price to balance our budget here in Alberta. Right. So and again, back to economic theory, the, last, the cost of the last barrel lifted should equal to the price and we don't exactly know all these soft above ground social costs, but in some ways we do because we're hearing the signaling from the OPEC plus countries that, uh-oh, we're going below $60, right? Now, I, I think that's the signal that's being sent. Actually, $50 is a technical, is a technical uh, long-term price, but it's, it's well above 60 if you factor in these uh, social costs. Well, here's a great example. We have a real-time situation today. Prices got close to the $70 per barrel threshold prior to the meeting. That's that's at Brent, the global price. Here comes the meeting. All the OPEC players come in the room and start talking about, we need to cut production. And so that's a signal that they don't want prices below $70. Now, interestingly enough, we didn't talk about this. President Trump came out quite shortly after the meeting to complain that they shouldn't cut supply, that we need to keep prices low. Um, so, you know, obviously he wants it lower. But I think the group sort of expected that. I would be surprised right. if they didn't expect uh, uh, Donald Trump to weigh in on this. He has been over the last year pretty active mm -hmm. in terms of weighing in on OPEC decisions. But I think this is the level that they're willing to irk the president because the pain for them is also significant as, yeah. as they move through this threshold. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a very dynamic situation. One question, do you think the technology that we're seeing in North America, the North Sea, all these things that have brought our cost curve down and continue to bring our costs down, do you see that spreading to other parts of the world? I think it eventually will. I think we'd be naive to think it doesn't, but it has been slower than you would expect. Yeah. Partly, I think, because they're turning off the valves and not yeah. innovating, and partly because the technology does take some time to learn and takes some capital to be invested. But I think over time, we'll probably start to see some of that type of technology show up in other places in the world. Well, based on this podcast and podcasts from the past when we talked about demand, you know, there's some really interesting thing to think about, and that is that it doesn't strike us from this conversation that we have peak supply, that technology is able to bring more supply out of the ground, and that's why we're in this price war and, and, and tension, and that we're not actually at peak demand either. Demand continues to grow very, very aggressively. And I think this is one of the reasons why we're seeing price as unstable and seeking direction. It's a, it's, it's a very uncertain given all the different variables where the price is going to go. The near-term price 
direction is more softness, but I think that's probably going to tip up again uh, once OPEC tightens, because I, I don't think they have a choice. Well, I think what we learned over uh, this past weekend is that it looks like in 2019, we'll still have OPEC sort of looking at the oil markets and, and helping to stabilize prices when we go through periods like this. Well, great discussion. So we shall see all of you next time. Yeah, thank you for joining our podcast. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.